Welcome to another installment of Last Ones at the Bar, the best boxing digest in podcast and YouTube form out currently. I'm joined by Lavelle Jackson and Daniel Lee, and I'm the captain of this cruise ship, <laughs> and we are going to take you on a cruise all around the land. Boxing is in hand. Huh. And we gonna talk it to you. Oh no, man! I've been listening to that old school music, man. You know what I'm saying? I just had to go ahead and say that in the intro. Um, but anyway, fellas, how you how you fellas doing? Uh, doing doing good. Yeah, happy to have you back. Uh, you know, we missed you last week, but had a great episode where you know Danny stepped in the, in the shoes of host and uh, brother Mustafa. You know, he did some 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 great things, made some great points, man. Might have him back here in the in the future, hopefully. For sure. I'm not you, Will. I'm not Aaron Rodgers, but I I tried to run it some plays out the Wildcat. You feel me? Oh man, you was audible, you know what I'm saying? You was doing a really good job. <laughs> Omaha, Omaha. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How's the week, fellas? Everything good? Oh yeah, you know everything's everything. Happy to be here. Uh, you know a lot of stuff going on in the world today and and in the sports world. So I mean, we gonna get to it though. Yeah, it was a good week for me as well. It was a very good week for me, actually. I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to say too much right now because it has the potential to lead to some, you know, even better things. But for now, I'll just say it was a very good week. Um, everything else was kind of, you know, normal outside of that. But I might I might have some good news for you guys coming up. Oh, man. And shout out to you for that article that they put or that they uh, wrote on you, you know, that, that's big, man. You're doing really big things and I'm proud of you. And, you know, just keep up the good work. You know, if you don't know, if Danny, if you don't mind sharing out um, the article that they wrote on you. Sure, man, I appreciate you too. But uh, there's this online publication, uh, shout out SoCal and they kind of, they wanted to interview me about myself and as well as my brand, the Monarch brand. I've alluded to it a few times on this show. But it's a content platform, and I also sell hair pomade under it. And so they wanted to talk about that and just about me a little bit. So it was cool. It's been a good year for the brand in terms of exposure. So excited for what's next. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. You got the article. You had the GQ um, magazine. You know what I mean? You on all type of YouTube channels and things like that. You know, the sky's the limit for you. Um, Vil, you alluded to topics that's going on in the world you know today it's a lot going on you know and the topic that's really been in the news as of late is you have um Brittany Griner the WNBA player she was recently sentenced to nine years or nine plus years in prison out there in Russia I think she has some cannabis oil in her luggage um you guys have any thoughts on that yeah it's a very unfortunate situation uh it, I think Russia pretty much stuck it to her and they're, they're playing chess with the United States uh, and the U S haven't really f figured it out or either that, or they don't really care too much, but they, it, it's also been said they're offering uh, Brittany Griner. They're going to try to offer Brittany Griner up for two of their uh, prisoners of war. So it's safe to say that this, this is pretty much a, you know, a political thing and Brittany Griner getting that type of time. It was almost like they were, they they plan it out because it's not like she was just over there just passing through. She's been over there. She plays over there. 
she's been playing over there since her career started in the off season. And, and some interesting things to note about it, though, is that Russia actually pays, we're paying her four times as much to play in the off season. The United States pays her to play in the WNBA. I, I just thought that point was interesting, but it's a very bad situation. Hopefully Brittany can, can get home. One thing I don't like about the situation is when people say things like, well, if there was LeBron, you know, they would have got him back sooner, but blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I understand what people are trying to say when they make that point. It's just that he's the wrong example you want to use because he's not, whether you're a fan of him or not, he's the type, he's not the type of person that could be that careless because at the end of the day, we know that Brittany Griner was, was targeted, but it could have been avoided. You know, someone, she could have known the laws of the people around her, could have known just some of the stuff that's going on, especially with the laws of Russia to avoid that situation. But even if she's 100% guilty, it doesn't warrant what they're doing to her or they're trying to do to her. Yeah, we can all see what we want from our, you know, American point of view. And, you know, we can apply logic to say that what she had on her and the nature of the drug doesn't justify the punishment. But fact of the matter is they they do not care. You know, they there's not our government and they're going to use that to the extent that they are they can use it and if they can create some kind of leverage with it then you know they will and that's what we see that they're trying to do and so it's very unfortunate but i as an american like i can't sit here and tell another country like you shouldn't you know you shouldn't do that i can apply my logic but logic is does not always coincide with the law unfortunately exactly you know when it comes to this situation, see, I can ride out with somebody if they like falsely accused or they're done wrong or, you know, you can't go somewhere else expecting to be treated like how you're treated here. You know, as far as like how sometimes in our country that laws, I mean, things change and it, it depends on the person. Sometimes it depends on the amount of money that you have. You know, it's a lot of factors that are in place. There was a guy, Trevor Reed, who similarly, he served like over three years over there for something similar to um, Griner. And it was, it got to a point where they had to negotiate the situation and he ended up being able to return. So he was speaking on that on CNN, maybe yesterday or the day before yesterday. So this isn't something that, you know, is, is unique. You can receive zero to nine years for the offense that she was charged for. And typically somebody who's not from there is gonna get closer to nine years than the zero. Somebody that's in Russia may get something a little bit more lenient. So it's not unprecedented. And I hear people say things like, well, see, sometimes people use the Skip Bayless um, lazy, arguments that they try to make where they'll use some type of anecdotal evidence to support something that really doesn't match. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't use, and I was hearing a little boost in, and I'm not, you know, I want everybody to chime in on this type of thing because we all have a right to do so. I just thought that when people use the argument of, okay, if this was LeBron, if this was Taylor, um, 
Swift or somebody like that, you're talking about that's a whole nother problem because sometimes when you have people who are more famous, people who generate a lot of revenue, they're going to get a lot of leniency or they're going to have a government or have governments reach out and try to get them back because they are that much of a benefit to our country, the world, um, the, the, the uh, whatever entertainment field that they're in. And so you can't use that. So when WNBA players and they're griping about how WNBA players aren't making that much money here, so they have to go overseas, well, they're not generating that much revenue. So that's the reason why a lot of people have to do that. A lot of people may work in an area and they have to drive so far to get to it, to another area to work because that's where the money is. And we all do that. So it's not, you can't like boo-hoo and cry about those type of things. It's just something, unfortunately, we have to, you know, come to grips with. That's something that you have to live with. That's something that you have to, if, if you didn't want to go to uh, Russia, you didn't have to. But the most important point that I'm making is this, you can't go to some other country and do something that is illegal and then expect, you know, and then start crying about it later. You know what I mean? Like you got to follow those laws. When I just came out of the country or went outside the country, I knew that I had to have certain, um, if I wasn't vaccinated, I had to have like a vaccine. If I wasn't vaccinated, then I have to um, get tested. You know, it's just certain, you know, procedures that you have to follow. I know that you go to certain countries there, you mess around and, and do these certain things that the extent of it could be this. So you don't mess around. You know, and it's like that. The last thing I'm going to say is this. It's like different laws inside our country. You know, in New York, if somebody is a pistol toter, they get caught with a weapon in New York. That's a mandatory one year, no matter if it's registered, or if it's not registered. That same rule may not apply if you're in Texas. So that's just how it is in the world. So unfortunately, she's in this situation. Um, but hopefully it's something that she can learn from and people can learn from, you know, moving forward. Anything else you guys have on that topic? Yeah, you made a great point about even the different states here. Like, um, for example, you know, if you live in a DMV area, you know, that you, you know how close Virginia, D.C. and Maryland is. And Virginia has, you know, it's pretty much open carry. You can you, you don't need a have your gun register or have a, a CPL. But knowing that, that doesn't mean that you should be going over to D.C. or going over to Maryland. If you get caught in D.C. with a gun, nobody's going to have, like, you know, sympathy for you because you should have known the laws. If you went through D.C. with a gun, you can't, and you can't use that argument, oh, well, in Virginia, it's legal to do that. No, they ain't going to look at it like that. You know what I'm saying? So part of it is understanding the laws of a place because it's not like she just got just, just passing through Russia. She's been playing in Russia. So that's the part that I'm like, man. But it also on the flip side, she probably been getting been getting away with this for a long time, and Russia probably probably targeted her like, okay, we okay, this is the time we gonna we don't get her and use her as a chess play. So I kind of believe that she was targeted by Russia also. Could be the other last thing I'm gonna say, which I forgot to say, and I don't want to go too long with this, but here's the issue that the Biden administration is going to have. And I'm not saying this negatively towards them or I'm not saying this. I'm just saying this was that by, if you go out of your way to get Brittany Griner out of this situation, you open yourself up 
you know, when it comes to like in elections and debates and things like that, because if you get hurt, then what about these people that's inside our country who's in jail for like cannabis related issues? So you're going to open yourself up. So I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Because either way it go, you know, it's, it's, it's a touchy subject. Um, but that's all I have. Danny, you got anything else? No, sir. Yeah, that's a good start, fellas. So uh, in this episode, what we're going to do is we got to recap the fight card out there in Fort Worth, you know, Funky Town, which is which had Virgil Ortiz. He was fighting Michael McKinson out of the UK. You had Marlene Asparza versus Eva Guzman. You had Blair the Flair Cobb against uh, Maurice Mighty Mo Hooker. We also can predict next week's uh, kind of, you know, big fight between Tiafimo Lopez. He'll be making his return against Pedro Campa, and then we'll discuss some current topics. So let's go ahead and start out there in Funky Town, Fort Worth. What you think about my main man, Virgil Ortiz, uh, when he took on Michael McKenzie yesterday? Yeah, he, Virgil Ortiz did what I expect him to do. And even Michael McKinson, he kind of did what I expect, I expect him to do also. The only thing McKinson did differently is when he when he came out, he came out really trying to fight Virgil Ortiz Jr. And as soon as he did that, I was like, that eh, might be a, a short night. It's going to be shorter than I, 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 I predicted. So um, he came out really taking it to Ortiz in the first round. Uh, and for a second, Ortiz kind of looked like he would, didn't expect it. A little uncomfortable, like, man, what's this dude doing? Do you know who I am? But he, he did look a little uncomfortable. And I thought that McKenzie actually won the first round. But Ortiz really started setting in better during the second round, using his jab, using hooks, even though uh, McKenzie, you know, was the taller fighter. McKenzie, he did use his feet a little bit. But it's, you know, the, as further as this fight went on, you saw that McKenzie gets slower and slower and slower as Ortiz was hitting him with all type of uh, hooks and, and hooks to the body and uppercuts. And, you know, he was really trying to get uh, McKenzie out of there, even though he was being patient also. So McKenzie, I, I feel, was getting broken down by, I would say, the fifth round. Uh, based on what I'm seeing, I'm not sure if McKenzie is going to last a distance. He did show some heart, I think, around the seventh round, trying to stay in the fight and trying to, you know, fight his way out of it. Even though he, he really wasn't just taking a beating in this fight, but he was getting broken down. And you can kind of see it. And in the, in the eighth round, Ortiz put McKinson down with a left hook to the body, which um, props to McKinson. He got up and, and toughed his way out of that round. I think it was only a couple of seconds left. And props to Ortiz because as soon as the, the ninth round started he cracked him with a bajai again and put him down and dropped him with a, with a left hook so McKenson got up and then and Ortiz I think got him down got him out of there which was very very impressive so Virgil Ortiz he improves to 19 and 0 with all knockouts uh, McKenson uh, falls to 22 and 1 with two knockouts um, I thought Ortiz gave a, a good account of himself I uh, in some spots, I thought McKinson fight would have won more rounds. I, 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 for some reason, I thought this was, this was going to be kind of like a replay of Miguel Cotto versus Paulie Malignaggi, except in this fight, Ortiz is going to get him out of there eventually. Um, Ortiz, he, he definitely made the adjustments uh, early on and really was playing, you know, paying them dividends to the body, which which paid off late in the fight as McKinson starts slowing down and he just starts 
being a little bit more stationary where Ortiz could get to him. So it was a good performance to him, and hopefully we see uh, Ortiz in, the, in, a, in a more challenging fight. Yeah, I thought it was a really, really good performance, especially to shake off some cobwebs. I had a lot of notes that I was going to take, but you made most of the points that I was going to make as far as what happened inside the fight leading up to the, you know, the stoppage. But all I'll say is this, is that looking at these guys in the ring, McKinson, what I liked about him is that he always showed confidence. Like he's one of those guys that you're going to have to beat him. He's the, the moment is not going to be too big for him. And he's coming there to win. And he showed that throughout the time that he was in there fighting Virgil Ortiz, who's a, you know, very sharp puncher, you know, very, um, very a pretty big puncher. You know what I mean? Somebody that you don't want to stand in front of, you know, too long. But he's big, though, too. McKinson, even though he's not a knockout artist, he doesn't have a lot of power. He is, if you look at his physique, especially like his legs. And um, he, he's a pretty big guy. He's pretty and he's very strong but he's not powerful. So that's the thing. So he can maul you inside and things like that. He has a lot, a lot of savvy. Um, Virgil, I thought that he looked a little rusty early and his timing was off a bit, especially like the first two, maybe the third or fourth round is when he kind of started catching his rhythm. And um, McKinson, like you said, Ville, he slowly, you know, decreased his, his, his uh, output because he was exerting a lot of energy trying to keep Virgil off of him. But he was doing a good job, man. I, when I talk about English muffins and things like that, McKinson definitely isn't. You know, my hat's off to him because he, he did a, a really good job of, you know, trying to implement his, his game plan and, and within his fight style and, you know, the ring generalship that he was showing. It's just he was in there with a monster, you know. And those punches that Ortiz was throwing and landing, it finally took his toll. You know, like you said, in the last 30 seconds of the eighth, and then he had the wherewithal to come out in a knife, not necessarily throwing something that was that heavy, you know, to the same spot, but it was like picture perfect, like right at, at the same point that he was hurt. It was just enough to for McKinson to be like, no, nah, I don't want no more of this. It's just too painful. You know what I mean? And, you know, you got him out of there. And so I thought it was a good victory after a year off. You know, it's also a good win, you know, learning to fight against somebody who was tricky. As, who's as tricky and savvy, you know, he's also a southpaw. And I also thought it was a good showing in defeat from McKinson. So I just thought it was a solid fight all around for both guys. I agree. Uh, McKinson didn't have like sort of that name value coming into the fight. But, you know, I was saying last week, I, I see what they were trying to do with matching him against him. You know, for one, as you guys said, out of the ring for a year, um, two, the elite guys from here that there are to face in the welterweight division, when you think about Errol Spence and Boots and Bud Crawford, both of the latter who can switch from Southpaw to Orthodox and vice versa, he's going to have to fight guys who are tricky like that and who are Southpaw. And those other guys I named, they come with the power too, you know? And so this was a way to kind of get that test without as much of the risk involved. And so, you know, with that said, it was a good fight. Unrelated, but I also noticed McKinson was from Portsmouth. So we from the same city. He just from the Portsmouth in UK. I'm from the Portsmouth in VA. Woo -woo! <laughs> I was like, okay. But um, yeah, I, I thought that McKinson came out initially trying to gain Ortiz respect, but, you know, he just kept, kept getting clipped. And I think what was game changing for Ortiz 
at the end of the fight, he was saying he should have listened to his corner, but he got what he needed to get from the corner to get through the fight because at, in between round one and two, the corner told him to start going to the body. And so I noticed in round two, that's when he started throwing those, those body hooks with the power hand. And that, that was like gradually, that was gradually slowing McKinson down. He also did a good job of just like off the strength of his, his aggression, forcing McKinson out of his game plan, which, you know, McKinson's not a fighter. He's a boxer, but he forced him to fight strictly just to keep him off of him. And so, like, he's, like, gradually slowing McKinson down just off of natural movements. And I, I thought McKinson did start to come back in those later rounds, like the seventh and the eighth. But another thing I didn't understand from his corner, you know, his father slash trainer, they interviewed him after the seventh round or at the beginning of the seventh round. And he was saying that he said something on the lines of, yeah, we're waiting for the later rounds and then we're going to take over. And it's like, well, dude, if you're going for a decision, why did y'all give away the almost the first half of the fight? And so that part didn't make sense to me. But, you know, that said, I think that both fighters took things they can learn from. I don't think this is the last that we've seen McKinson on the world stage. One of the things that I didn't like from him was that uh, he didn't try to get that foot on the outside more. You know, when, you, when you're a southpaw, you know, you want to have that foot on the outside. Because what, what was happening, what I was seeing was they would have those instances where, you know, they're throwing jabs at the same time. Virgil would get there quicker because he had his foot on the outside. But, you know, that said, I think that McKenzie still had a good fight. I also want to see him, like, kind of lean his head for it less. I I want to see his chin down. Um, the uh, Virgil didn't take advantage of it a whole lot, but he left – McKinson left like I think it was the left one of the sides of his face like he left it exposed with his chin up and it was like there to be hit he would just happen to be slick enough in this instance to you know not take a lot of shots there in particular um, but I think he got some things he could learn from um, I think that you know to you guys point he made a good showing for it so you guys have anything else the only thing I'll say is this is that I think McKinson some of the things you mentioned I agree and at the same time, some of those things that he doesn't do kind of throws his opponent off. And that's what makes him a little bit more tricky, you know, as well, is that some things that you would think that he would do, he's not doing. And it, it kind of throws them off. It kind of throws their rhythm off because he, and when I've I seen him fight previously, he kind of fights like that, where he, he only has two knockouts and 20 something victories. But he's in there fighting guys. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because typically somebody with that, you know, uh, limited amount of KOs, you would think that they'd be more of an outboxer. But he he generally is in there, you know, but he he mauls. Like, he, he, he's, he does a very good job of just kind of being stronger than the other guy that he's facing. And at certain points, you know, he looked like he was equally as strong as Virgil at the very least. You know, um, I look forward to seeing what Virgil, because the welterweight division, you know, obviously Spence and but they're going to be tied up, you know, hopefully. And you got those studs that are up and coming or they just like on the cusp of, you know, being next up. You know, you got Stan Jonas, you got Boots, you got, 
I mean, even Connor Ben, if he's really, I don't know what Connor Ben is going to do. I don't know if he's going to go up to face somebody else or what if he's going to stick to 147. But if he's there, then you got that, you know, fighter, another fighter out of the UK. You got the older heads like Thurman and Ugas. What I would like to see for Virgil or even Boots before they take that next step, because once they take the next step, it's not going to be any more of these type of fights. But this was a good fight. Like they matched, they they matched him really well in this matchup against McKinson. But I would see if I can get somebody like either or. It could be Boots or it could be um, Ortiz, David Avenesia. Like I would go through somebody like that, and then you know after that, man, you really checked off all of the boxes, and it's time to go ahead and you know, step up to the plate and see how far you can go with your career. But that's all I got. Did you have anything, Bill? No, sir. Cool. Now, on the co-main, we had some of the women fighting. Marlon Esparza came back. She defended two of her belts at the 112-pound division against Eva Guzman. Bill, I understand you saw that? Yeah, this was an interesting fight for a few different reasons. Uh, the first thing that, that was noticeable, I'm not sure how many times I've seen a size difference between two flyweights, but it was a clearly a size difference. Uh, Vail, Vail, I don't mean to cut you off. You know what was crazy about that? Yeah, go ahead. Is that they were saying that Guzman need to move down. And I'm like, what? <laughs> she, I mean, she can. She could have. I mean... From a number standpoint, I mean, she could move down to 105 or 108 or something like that. Because I think she came in at 109. So, but, yeah, but just I'm looking just at the height that. difference, though. I'm looking at the mid-section, but that's enough. Yeah, that too. That too. Gu- I mean, Guzman was just, you know, muscular. And Esperanza looked like she was just, you know, more filled out. But Guzman's like 4'11", you know, so that fight that flyweight, Esperanza is like 5'3". Um, but it was interesting because the commentators basically like kind of writing Guzman off as she's coming through the ring. Like, yes, yeah, you know, Esperanza is going to probably knock her out. She doesn't have experience, which those were valid points. It's just when that bell rang, Guzman, you know, she let the punches go and she was throwing the, she was throwing the punches. Uh, just that Esperanza was just more accurate and was hitting Guzman between those combinations. One thing I, I really didn't like is how the commentators just maybe I was watching a different fight, but the commentators were just giving. Esperanza way too much credit. I mean, I understand she was kind of controlling the fight a little bit, and she was throwing shots. She was throwing some hard, some you know, hard shots in between Guzman's, you know, volume. But it wasn't hard to a point where I thought that she was just hurting Guzman. Uh, and, and even at some points, I thought Guzman was even having an effect on Esperanza. But when this fight was set and done, I thought Guzman did enough to edge this fight. I didn't know how this was a, just a dominating performance from Esperanza and how he looked like how the commentators looked at it at the, and the judges looked at it like that but you know maybe maybe I maybe I had too much to eat or I was drinking too much yesterday I don't know but uh it still was a, a, a good fight it was entertaining to watch you know they went at it it was entertaining uh so props to Esperanza and, and hopefully they don't write Eva Guzman off again as she moves forward in her uh pursuits and Danny you got anything I got a little bit. I thought Esparza did what she was supposed to do against a mandatory challenger. Um, but Guzman was game to her point. I didn't have this, I didn't have the score as wide as the judges did. Um, and I'll, I'll give Guzman her props. This was a major step up of competition for her. Like you said, they were writing her off at the beginning. But whatever she lacked 
whether it be the quality of opposition or whether it be just the boxing ability, she definitely made for made up for with her activity. And, you know, I enjoy watching her fight. I think she's going to get another big opportunity, or at least I hope she gets another big opportunity. You know, you guys talked about her moving down in weight. And, you know, Val, you said she pretty much weighed in just a pound above 108-pound division. Um, as far as a, she's a big 112, I don't know where she would get that opportunity, but I do think that she can leverage this past performance you know, and get something better than the domestic fights that she's been getting. Um, as for Esparza, I, I know she wants to unify with the belts. They've been kind of hyping their rematch between her and Sinisa Estrada, but Estrada's already said that she would have to come down to her weight class, which I'm not sure that Esparza could do because Esparza just because just of her size. And even if she did, that will put her at even more of a disadvantage because Estrada is naturally smaller. And she just signed that big deal with top rank. So I don't know where she goes from here outside of outside of unifying, but it was a good fight for what it was. You got anything, Will? I mean, the only thing I can say is this. I, I wasn't like scoring the fight. It's just what when I was watching the fight, I thought Guzman was doing giving a very good of a counter or so. But they were overlooking everything that she was doing, and they were just focusing in on what Esparza was doing. And a lot of times I didn't see what it is that they were saying that she was doing. And when it came to the scorecards, I just knew that she wasn't, she really didn't have an opportunity. Um, regardless, it wasn't going to go her way. She had to do, probably had to get some knockdowns or something like that in order to get a fair shake yesterday because it was a, it was the Esparza show yesterday. All right. I wasn't, I wasn't the only one that is seeing this stuff. Cause I was just like, Maybe maybe something's going on with me, <laughs> but uh, moving right along, there was another uh, fight that that went on yesterday. It was Blair the Flair cop. He took on Maurice Hooker. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that guys, and, and what do you think is going to go? For, what do you think is next for these two guys? That's an interesting question um, that you you pose. Um, going into this fight, Mo Hooker he came in at 150 pounds and. Blair was just under the welterweight limit at 146. That surprised me because they were saying that Mo couldn't make 147. And I didn't think that Mo necessarily was a 147 pound fighter in the first place. I thought he was better off at 140. So I don't, I don't know, because even when the fight started, you know, obviously Cobb looked smaller, but he looked quicker. And Hooker, he kind of looked like he was in the days, like the first three or four rounds he finally started to try to pick it up a little bit but it was just something about him that just didn't look right um, and a lot of it had to do with with cop you know the first round he dropped him in an exchange second round he dropped him two times straight left dropped him then you had um hooker he started to do a little bit better but then in the middle of an exchange he got caught with another left it just cop was just timing him perfectly like he'd just get him in a little exchange and he knew that he was just going to land quicker, you know, to the spot. Anytime that he would go down the middle, especially early, you know, Hooker just didn't have an answer for it. Round three, the only thing that I would say in this fight, I was, I was very impressed with Cobb this fight, but I, I noticed that he does a lot of unnecessary movement sometimes. And against a better fighter, I think that that may spell trouble because he started to get a little bit fatigued in this one. But if somebody else who was like a real solid welterweight with the know-how, 
then like I said, I think that that could spell trouble. It was a lot of wild exchanges in this fight, but I thought that Cobb, he took the fourth, the fifth. In the sixth round, he faced a little bit of adversity because he he sustained a headbutt and he looked like Cobb was getting a little bit tired. And round six was the best round for Hooker. And then round seven, Hooker, I mean, yeah, Hooker was doing well, but then it's just like at the end of the round, Cobb would land some type of flashy, like counterpunch, like the culminate the action. And so it's like, it, did Hooker do enough to win a round? Because that punch was the best punch of the fight or other round. So who do you give that round to? But it really didn't matter because Cobb was up so, so much. Um, and then I think, I want to say like round seven. No, it was round 10. Um, and before I even get to that, in this fight, it was so many wild exchanges that I was surprised that it wasn't a hit, but sooner, you know, based on all of those wild exchanges, the lefty righty, you know, type of situation. And also for Hooker, I'm starting to be concerned for him if he's going to continue to box because he's taking a lot of punishment. He's that's his third loss in his last four fights. And in those three losses, those were some brutal losses. And it doesn't look like he's getting any better under the tutelage of Bomack. And it looks like he's regressing a little bit. Um, and if he's going to be playing this weight game, he can't get down to like a weight that he can, you know, perform at his optimal level, then it's going to get even worse. Because I don't think Cobb, when I look at the top welterweights, I don't, I think he may be top 20, you know, maybe at best top 15. And so you can mess around with some of those other guys, that's going to spell destruction, destruction for him. And it reminds me of a guy I went to go see Roy Jones fight Reggie Johnson. I want to say that was June 5th, 1999. And when I, after the fight, I went to the parking lot and I saw Arthur Williams, who was on the undercard. He faced Vasil Giroff. And he, the crazy thing is, I don't know how Arthur Williams got home, but he was outside of the venue and he was just like, in the days, like he was so groggy. I'm like, where is his people at? You know what I mean? And this is somebody who I want to say he was like the WBO champion or something like that, or at least he fought for that belt on several occasions. He's from Pensacola, Florida. But I was like, man, he's in his career, he's starting to take a severe beat. I just don't want Mo to be in a situation like that. Cause even in this fight, if he was going to win, he had got off to such a bad start that he was going to need a KO. He was going to have to be like a fighter and old school fight fans would know who I'm talking about, Matthew Saad Muhammad. He used to do that, where he'll be down in the fight and then he'll pull it out in the end. But when you fight that type of fight, it's gonna like take years off your life. You know what I mean? As far as like quality of life. And that's what ended up happening. So I don't want that to happen to Mo. But anyway, answering into the 10th round, Bo Mack, he was telling them, we need this round. I'm like, no shucks, Sherlock. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, but at the same time, even if you win this round, it's not going to be enough for you to win this fight. So I start questioning, like, Bo Mack, outside of Terrence Crawford, like, his, I don't know, I don't want to say that, you know, but I already said it. So um, all in all, man, in this fight, Cobb did his thing. He won a, a pretty lopsided decision. Much respect to him. The other thing, you know, as far as Cobb is concerned is that he could have found a way out. Like he was up so high on the scorecards by such wide of a margin that he could have, after 
he ended up sustaining the headbutt that he could have said, you know, I can't see or something like that, but he wanted to fight on. He wanted to, you know, finish Hooker off. And so I can't do anything but give him the utmost respect for that. He he showed me a lot more than he did in that Rocha fight. And, you know, he, he, he earned my respect. You know what I mean? The last thing I'm going to say is this, is that when they talked about Hooker in this fight being the bigger guy, I think that he was the heavier man, but he wasn't the bigger man. He just came in at a weight that was bigger than Cobb. But naturally, I think Cobb is the bigger guy. And Cobb is a, a natural 147-pound fighter, and he'll perform at his optimal level at that weight. Where Hooker, you know, if you get if he gets heavier, he's going to be slower. You know, his reaction time is not going to be as good. So it really didn't benefit him by coming in as big as he did. It's like if you have Deontay Wilder trying to fight Fury, he comes in heavier than Fury, then that's not going to benefit him by doing that. You know what I mean? So, you know, all in all, great win for Blair Cobb, especially coming off the, the Rocha loss. And the last thing I'm going to say is this. Woo! You guys have anything on that? Yeah, you know, like dude came out to, to Stone Cold and left to Ric Flair. I was like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, you made a lot of the points that, you know, I had written down. Uh, it was a great performance by Blair Cobb. I was actually impressed with him. Uh, Maurice Hooker, it just seemed like he, he just seemed flat. Like he did, he wasn't, I'm curious to, to, to know, like when did he receive the notice that he was fighting and did he have enough time to, to train? As you said, he's a guy that, that fought at 140, even though he's a tall fighter with, long, with very, very long limbs. He he's he's really kind of you know a, a kind of thin you know uh, 147 pounder who really made all his marbles at 140 at 140. So that was a kind of a, a red flag that he came in so heavy um, that he was he's probably you know was struggling to get down in weight. Uh, and then that he was drained. So when the fight started, he, I mean, he seemed like a, a fighter that was, you know, drained and wasn't well prepared. Uh, his feet looked like cement. His head wasn't moving. Um, it, it just seemed like he had all the signs of a fighter. It just had too much. And, and, and Blair Cobb, it looked like he was just going to, he came out sharp. It looked like he was going to finish him off, I think, in the second round when he knocked him down twice. Uh, but Fairness to, to Hooker. Hooker is a tough guy, and, and he stayed in there. But I really do think that Blair Cobbs could have stopped him really, really early if he if he really put his you know stepped his foot on the pedal. But I think there was also some concern, like you know Blair Cobb himself is coming off a loss, and and, and one of the things I'm, I'm is, is, as I think about it, I kind of respect Blair Cobb more because he could have just got Maurice Cooker out of there and say, hey, look, I won. But he allowed himself to go through the adversity and, and go through the, you know, Hooker putting up a fight. He, it was almost like he had some questions to answer himself. Like, can I really, you know, take it, you know, when, when the fire starts? Uh, so it was impressive. Um, I, the only thing I was disappointed is that cops didn't stop him. But uh, Hooker, you know, tough guy. But as you said, Will, it just seemed like something, not even his physicality, but his body language just seemed like somebody who just wasn't there. Uh, I didn't really notice Bo Max advice, but I, I do think that Crawford was giving, giving him great advice between rounds, which I was, which was interesting because, you know, normally fighters that's gifted like that 
aren't very well they don't do very well with communicating what they see and what to do all the time they just know how to do it and he i think he did a good job it's just that maurice hooker just his mind was not there to do it um but great performance by blair cobb yeah i mean you guys alluded to it but it just didn't seem like hooker's head was in in this you know um obviously leading up to the fight in terms of not making the weight but just in the fight you know it just didn't seem like his mind was there and it seemed like his body was doing what his mind wanted it to do. Um, so I don't know, not to take away from his win at all because he looked good. I don't know if it was more about Cobbs or more about Hooker or both. It could have been a combination of both. But, you know, to give Cobbs his respect, he was doing a great job of timing Hooker. He has this kind of style where, you know, even though he did fatigue at some points for most of the fight, you know, he was pretty like, bouncy and like kind of spry throughout it the only thing i didn't like about that was that you know he kind of leaves himself open when he like lunges while he's coming in in terms of how he ended the fight like the last few rounds i definitely rounds nine and, and ten maybe round eight too but i can't really knock him because he's doing a lot of moving there and he would kind of like stick and move for a while then stick and move for a while and i can't knock him for that because he pretty much had to fight one it's just that, you know, if if you're a guy like that with his personality, I feel like doing ending the fight that way isn't really going to gain you any new fans. Um, he also took a little bit more punishment than I would have liked from someone who was, you know, um, is sort of wasn't moving. Hooker wasn't moving as much as other fighters at that division would be moving and, and Cobb took a lot of punishment. But he he got some things he can learn from and he's still learning you know he he doesn't have a whole lot of fights for, for his age and so i hope hooker is okay though like mentally you know what i mean but that's all i really get so moving into our sort of predictions portion of the pod next week we don't have a whole lot of action but we do have teofimo lopez coming back for his first time since the loss in november to george Campos jr he's coming back first fight at 140 as well fighting Pedro Campa. How do you guys see that fight playing out? Okay, so you got Teofimo Lopez versus Pedro Campa. This is going to be Teofimo's, uh, he's making his debut into the 140-pound weight class. Originally, Teo was uh, supposed to fight Arnold Barbosa, but um, they switched up maybe a month or two ago and Campa is uh, taking on a task. Campa, He's only fought in Mexico, so this will be his first fight in the United States. Uh, Tia Fimo's 5'8". He's 24 years of age. He has a 68 and a half inch reach. He is 16-1 with 12 KOs, uh, with his only loss being to George uh, Cambosis. Campo, uh, he's 30 years old, 5'9". I didn't see his reach on box rec. He is 34-1-1. One one. The one loss was by KO, and he has 23 KOs. He has a 63% KO ratio, where Teofimo has a 70% KO ratio. Now, in this fight, when you look at the attributes of both guys, I'll just break it down like this. When you look at the different categories, Teofimo is going to have a lot of advantages in this fight, fight when it comes to just the different attributes. So when you look at the jab, 
um, Campbell, when I looked at his highlights and, and, and the, the limited amount of fights that I saw, I didn't see much of a jab that he uses. He's more of a swarmer. So when you think about, you know, the utilization of the jab, I have to go with Tia Fimo. As far as speed, by far, Tia was much faster. Matter of fact, Campbell's kind of slow, and he's, he, he throws a lot of wide looping shots, but it, it works for him. But you know how that goes as far as if you mess around and fight, find the right opponent, then that could be a detriment. And that may play a factor in this fight. I'm sure it will. Um, but when it comes to the speed, you definitely have to go with T.O. As far as boxing ability, and boxing ability is so subjective. There's different ways that you can look at this. But I think that when you look at the overall picture when it comes to boxing, Kampa is not a boxer, you know. And Tiafimo, when he does box, he's very good at mid-range. And that's where he... Um, he likes to likes to fight. Um, when it comes to inside fighting, this is I give it to Tio as far as inside fighting because I think that Tio is more controlled and he does things like that shoulder roll and he'll walk people into shots. Where Campbell, he is a swarmer. He likes it in there. It's just it's not as he doesn't have like a strategic approach. He's just going to come in there and wing no shot. So I have to give the inside fighting to Tio. Now, with that being said, I think that that is Kampa's best chance at winning is if Tio stays on the inside long enough where he can get worn down. When it comes to accuracy, definitely Tio by far. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a patient fighter. Um, and, you know, like I say, he can land, he can walk people into shots. He knows how to set you up where Kampa, that's not his game. He's more of a volume puncher. So when it comes to volume, I have to check that off for him where he's, you know, I'm sure when you look at the punch stats after most fights that he'll have way more punches thrown than Teofimo Lopez. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case in this fight because, you know, when you have somebody who's heavy handed as Teo and who's as accurate as Teo, that can kind of stymie somebody's volume. So we'll see how that plays out. As far as defense, again, Teofimo by far. Uh, Kampa, again, is the, I don't see defense. Like his best offense, his best defense is his offense. And then as far as footwork, I have to go with Teo. Just like I say, Kampa is just a guy who's going to come in there, you know, and wing no shots. Now, Kampa is going to have some advantages. The advantages that he's going to have is that he's taller, you know, slightly taller. He's much bigger. Like Kampa looks to me as if he can fight at welterweight. And the last thing that he's going to have as far as advantages, he has very little pressure. You know, nobody expects him to be victorious in this fight. So that should do wonders for him. And then the last few things that I have as far as the questions, will Tio's power, you know, move up to 140? It should. Will he be rusty after that pretty long layoff? You know, will he be able to withstand the punch of a 140-pound fighter? You know, he was dropped against Cambosis, you know, in his last fight. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, for him is, will he be stronger, you know, because he had to drain himself, you know, pretty much to make 135. So now that he doesn't have to do that, will that benefit him? And he's actually a stronger at 140. I don't know. I think it's going to take him some time to get acclimated to the division. I think that if he was fully acclimated, I would pick a knockout. But in this one, I think it's going to be similar to how Denny Garcia was when he fought against uh, Jose Benavides, where he's going to be able to land some shots, but at the same time, I don't think he's going to be that aggressive uh, enough where he's going to be able to take out 
Kampa. And so I'm thinking that this is probably going to be a 10-round decision. I wouldn't be surprised if you knock him out, but just as far as my prediction is concerned, I'm going to say a 10-round decision uh, for Teofimo Lopez in this first uh, foray at the 140-pound weight class. I don't have too much more to add myself because you did such a great job at breaking it down sort of attribute by attribute. I could personally see Tio's power carrying up and I, I see why they matched him against a guy like him because Kampa, he he hasn't had like a high quality of opposition, but he's also a big 140. And so, you know, Teofimo Lopez didn't have to drain himself to get down to 135. He gets to sort of see what fighting at 140 is like against someone of that size, but not necessarily with the experience. And so that said, you know, and, and what's good about this also is that his layoff wasn't, he did, he has had a layoff, but it wasn't that long. And so I think this fight is going to be more about where Tiafimo's head is at. You know what I mean? Um, because, you know, he was, he had a lot going on leading up to the Cambosos fight. And he, you know, I'm not sure where it is, you know, going into this one, but I do think that this is sort of a safe enough match by the matchmakers to where, um, you know, his jab is going to sort of stymie Kampa's work rate. And I could see him really getting like a late round stoppage, but I'm also going to go a decision as well in Lopez's favor. Yeah, you, you gentlemen made some excellent points as far as the attributes. I, yeah, I do think. The only thing that Kampa really has going for him in this fight is that he's bigger. He's been fighting at 140 his whole career. And at some points, he's fought at uh, 147. And as you said, Will, he does like a 147-pounder. But I, th I think he's a come-forward fighter. I, I did see him use the jab, but it's not an impressive jab. Like, it's, it's pretty slow, uh, and his feet are slow. And we're talking Teofimo Lopez. We're talking about somebody who's very, very athletic. You know, anybody doing somersaults in the ring, just athletic, strong, explosive. You know, he has boxing ability. He has all these things in his favor. The only thing is that his first fight at 140, um, he, he's probably going to be slightly smaller. He's going to be a smaller guy. And that sometimes his mentality is, is, is you have to, he's so emotional. He sometimes you have to wonder if outside uh, distractions get to him. But I do think in this fight, he's going to be very, very focused. I think he has something to prove. He definitely wants to erase that 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 last time we saw him, which was a loss with to George Cambosas. So I do think he's going to really take it to Kampa and try to make a point that he's here at one one at at one forty. So I, I won't, I'm I'm going to go on a limb and say he stops him within three rounds. I wouldn't be surprised if he stops him in the first. Or he's at least going to try to go for it in the first. But I say Tiafimo Lopez stops Pedro Campa in three rounds. Yeah, much respect to you. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if he takes that approach um, against a bigger guy, you know, because this is one of the first times, maybe against Kome, you know, that he fought somebody who was, was either equally as big or, or a little bit bigger. And so we'll see. Um, the only thing I'm going to say, and it's not necessarily on that fight, is just more so like these guys, man, with some of these these newer generations and, and it's hard for them to accept defeat. You know, Tio kind of took it a little bit better than Danny and Danny's not, he should know better. You know what I mean? And I just wanted to address this. You guys talked about this last week. 
because I thought that what Danny was doing, and it's a little sidebar, is that <laughs> he um, took the convenient approach of using mental health. Now, he could be going through some mental, you never want to, you know, boo-hoo, you know, that sort of thing. But the, the way he explained it, it just sounded like he, he had a difficult time dealing with the loss. Now, the only problem that I, the biggest problem that I had with him is that he never acknowledged the fact that Errol Spence defeated him. Now, I'm saying that to say that Tiafimo's similar situation where he was using all type of excuses and things like that after he was defeated by Cambosis, where he never really acknowledged the fact that Cambosis, now I know y'all had like bickering, you know, between each other and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, somebody beats you, you just go ahead, shake the man's hand, either fight him again or say, you know, you got, you had me on that night. And then, you, you, you know, that's what, what men do. You know what I'm saying? And I just don't like, he didn't use the convenient excuse of mental health. Like I think that Danny did. Now Danny could have mental health issues, but what he didn't acknowledge was the fact that the better man got him. And it was by far, I just thought that that's the first time in his career where he was, you know, really solidly beat. You know what I mean? Where there's no shadow of a doubt who won the fight and he was kind of beat up. And that kind of messed with his, you know, more so than anything that what was hurt was his feelings. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I just wanted to mention that. I didn't get a chance to chime in last week. You know, I apologize. for Oh, man, you know, they say no news is good, good news. And and, and, and that's what Gary Gano used to say. Um, yeah, too young to know about that Gary Gano. All right, so the first thing, so we're going to go into these current news topics, you know, that are going on in, in the world of boxing. The first thing is, is they finally decided to go ahead and get it on, man. So they uh, reopened things for the Joe Joyce and Joseph Parker uh, fight. Um, you know, what do you guys think about that fight for, especially for Joyce, you know, at this stage of his career? I think it's a good fight for him, a good step up fight. When is this fight again? I want to say September 24th. Yeah, this is a pretty good fight for Joe Joyce. The, the interesting thing is, you know, his age, uh, even though he's young in ring years, he's kind of older in physical years, but I think the ring years kind of matter, matters more because he's not like in his 40s or anything like, like that. But I do think Joseph Parker is more experienced. He's been around the ring a little bit more. He's He's been in the ring with more experienced guys and better competition than Joe Joyce. It's just that uh, Joe Joyce just always finds a way to get it done. Uh, even though he 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 comes off kind of slow when you watch him, but he's always thinking. So I so my thought is that Joe Joyce will win this fight. Uh, I'm not sure how he wins that fight. I know I know I made a prediction before, and that prediction still stands. I don't I don't uh, see anything that changed too much. So I do have Joe Joyce beating uh, Joseph Parker. Yeah, I mean Joyce beating Hammer didn't really change my view of like the trajectory of this fight uh i just hope <laughs> with respect to both of these gentlemen whatever network is on i hope they have some kind of feature where i can speed it up a little bit you know what i mean to watch them fight because you know joyce like you said he just isn't a very fast moving guy but yeah parker just has his way of he's talented but you know, he just been in some snooze fest, man. Like, you know, I, I still remember that fight where uh, when he fought, like, Junior Fa. And, like, that's somebody that someone with the caliber of talent that Parker has, 
should have been able to do more with. But, you know, they both have, for the most part, found a way to get it done. So it's, it's kind of a toss-up to me, but I would actually – I think last time I said I had I had a Joyce decision, and I think I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, I think that in this one, I would actually – this is not my official prediction, but I, I think that Parker is going to box circles around him. And the main reason is Joyce, he hasn't fought anybody with the skills of a Parker who's still kind of like in their prime that can like box, hold you. And he's so slow that I think that Parker is going to see everything that he's doing because Parker ended up going 12 with Joshua. And Joshua is quicker than Joyce. And he has some success against um, Joshua. So I think that he can use that. He can, he can you know, go back into his toolkit and, and recall what it is he did in that fight. And he's going to utilize that in this fight. But I don't think that my man, um, the juggernaut, I don't think he has anything to, you know, recall how to face somebody like a park. And I don't think that he has the skills the attributes like the speed sometimes it's just certain things that you you don't have and i just think that that's he's physically strong now if you put him against somebody the right fighter who may be somebody who kind of um fatigues towards the middle latter part of the fight then he can catch him you know during that time because he's very heavy-handed i just don't think that that's going to be the case because parker's used to going 12 rounds i think that you know, I wouldn't even be surprised if Parker wouldn't, you know, kind of like stun him a little bit because I think he's going to be getting off on him a lot more than other fighters have. And like I say, even though the juggernaut can take a heck of a punch, it's only so much that you can take. So I have to lean towards Parker in this one. The last thing I say about uh, Joe Joyce is this, is that with him, the only really chance that I give him is this, is that maybe, just maybe, He's one of those guys that they look horrible against guys that they're supposed to beat. But then when it's somebody who's, you know, a, a top opponent that people are saying that might beat him or that he has a chance of losing against, then that's when his antennas are up and he looks better. Because he did do that against Dubois. And, you know, before that, when I saw him fight against other people, I could have sworn Dubois was going to wipe the floor with him. But he showed up that day. But in his last couple of fights, against to calm and hammer he just can't get out of the way of punches and so i'm just thinking that parker is definitely top seven when it comes to the heavyweights and can you beat one of those guys if you just are that easy to hit and so that's my biggest concern that's why i have to lean towards parker anything you else you have on that we'll make our official predictions later on when it comes to that yeah i got nothing at the moment but uh, like I said, I think it's it's not entirely a 50-50 fight, but I can see it going either way. It's close enough percentage-wise where I can see it really going either way. I, I do think Parker has more attributes. He just, I don't know, man. It just that's just my gut, you know. This is a gut yeah. feeling. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good. It's a good match, though. You know, what I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, the second thing we want to discuss is this past week. Adrian Broner, he did an interview. Um, I don't, I can't, and I don't want to disrespect the podcast. It was a really good interview. You know, I, I was just taking a look at it for a second. I, I didn't plan on listening to it for the whole hour, but it was really engaging. 
Um, but one segment, one portion of that interview, Broner was talking about wanting to um, fight Floyd Mayweather. He was saying how, you know, they could do like an exhibition match. And it's more so for the fact that they both could make buku dollars. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's something that they should, that Floyd should entertain. And he will definitely want to, to do that. Also, he wouldn't even mind just sparring with them because they never sparred before. But for the interest of this particular topic, what did you, what would you think about that? Like, um, what do you think about Broner saying that, you know, he wants to face Mayweather somehow, way, shape, or form? <laughs> well, I'm not mad at him because it, that's the, you know, the money guy and he'll make the most money fighting uh, Floyd Mayweather. The only thing is, I remember him calling out Floyd before in his career and it seemed more personal then. Now it's more like, Oh, exhibition, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if I want to really see an exhibition with uh, with Floyd and uh, Adrian Broner. I'd rather see an actual fight with Floyd and Broner because even though, you know, Broner mentally and all this stuff, he doesn't really, it, 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 it wouldn't make sense. It makes more sense for someone like Floyd who's been out of the ring for about five years, you know, probably longer than that, facing an actual boxer. So Adrian Broner would probably be the, the first boxer he that Floyd faced in a, in a real fight in like seven years. So that's the only intrigue for it. And in a for a, in a casual fan way, it's gonna it will make a lot of money because Adrian Broner, who people outside of boxing know and they like, and then there's of course it's Floyd Mayweather. And I can see I, I guess I can see a better chance of that fight happening than than you know Floyd against another actual active boxer I don't, I don't see any anything else you know no, the only thing I, I see from Floyd going forward is more so just more the exhibitions against you know the guys he's been fighting and the guys overseas because he's more of an international star but that's my thoughts on it I said it when you know we talked about the Figueroa fight I, I think he just needs to Worry about putting forth a good performance against an active boxer and then take what opportunities he can get. You know, I, I also say that I don't know the context of the conversation. I don't know how that came, how that came about. But if I were Broner, I would try to make the best of my pro career because he's also talking about wanting to be a world champion. I would try to make the best of my pro career and it's already out there in the atmosphere. I, you know, let Floyd call call you. You know, if that's what you want, is there. Floyd is going to continue to get whatever opportunities he can. And he can make that fight happen if he wants to. But if he doesn't, it's because the money isn't there. And frankly, you know, we don't know if that AB well has run dry. You know, I think, you know, we'll see with the Figueroa performance. But I would just worry about that fight. Right. You know, and, and I think, like, based on what I gather from the interview, what he was saying is they, they were talking about relationships and how he has the relationship with Tank and how like that's his brother and you know they'll go out and do things and Tank uh, um, you know he'll pay for everything or you know Tank don't have to worry about this or it might be a situation where you know he might need a little something then Tank look out for him he was just saying he didn't have that relationship with with Floyd not necessarily that it would be like that but as far as just the closeness of their relationship but he was saying that since he's like that's still a big bro you know how he, he talks and he was saying how 
he wished that since they are, since that is big bro, that what we could do is we could do an exhibition or we could do a fight and we could make, you know, a boatload of money and, you know, that'd be that. Or even if we didn't do that, you know, he said that he wouldn't have mind ever sparring with him because he said that he could learn from that, which he never got the opportunity. Now, the thing for me is this, when I look at this situation, is I think that Broner is looking at the situation, you know, solely on his end. And where Floyd is, he's moving differently. You haven't been in that realm. So you don't know why it is he's doing what it is he's doing. A lot of times for me, like if I have somebody who is in a position that I haven't been to, I don't try to like tell them or like speak on something that I'm not in a situation, you know what I'm saying? So I can't really say what it is that I would do in that, in, in that if I was in that position, if I made it up to this um, point, you know what I mean? And I think that that's what Broner is missing out of this, you know, when it comes to him and Floyd, because like you say, Bill, he's an international star. So he can, he might just want to one day, okay, I want to fight this guy in Dubai. He, he's um, popular out there. So I can go ahead and corner that market. I can go over here and fight somebody in the Arctic Circle. I don't know. I'm just talking, but I'm just saying like, that may be something that he's on at this particular stage in life. You know what I mean? And so Broner just is not factoring those type of things um, into the equation. But I understand where he's coming from based on what he's saying. It's like, okay, we cool. Then we can go ahead and, and do this and, and we can make, you know, this amount of money doing it and it would be between us. So I understand, understand where he's coming from, but I can understand both sides of the picture too. Anything else on that, fellas? Yes, sir. All right, so let's go ahead and go to Rockmine, man. So Rockmine, the other day, you know, you got the whole ordeal, man, with the Jake Paul. Jake Paul is talking about trying to fight KSI. I mean, that's a whole not I don't even know who KSI is and all those dudes, man. I'm sitting up there watching the zone. They asking me, do I want to pay for the KSI versus some dude? I don't know, man. Like, this stuff is crazy. And they got a whole different thing over there. You can pay $9.99 as if this is something that I'm very interested in. You know what I'm saying? To see KSI, whatever, man. But anyway, as far as the Paul and Rockman fight, they were supposed to fight next week, you know, which would have been very interesting. Um, but <clears throat> when the fight was canceled, to show that he was serious and that he could, you know, get as close to 205 pounds, the contractual weight, um, as he could, Rockman still did a weigh-in. And so I think he was 206.5, which meant that the fight would have still went on, but he would have been deducted a certain amount uh, from his check. So I guess what I'm asking, what do you guys think about, you know, Rockman and the weigh-in, just this whole situation, this whole fiasco in general? Well, yeah, this, this, is, this was a fight that normally I'm not really interested in, like, YouTubers and stuff like that. But this this was interesting because Rami was an actual boxer and he posed an actual danger. And I knew that that the catch, the, the real catch of this fight was that it was going to be the weight. If Rami was not going to be able to make the weight, that's what they were counting on. If Rami makes this weight, that means he's going to be drained. So when, he, when they got word that he couldn't make that weight or when, I guess, because I think this, this fight was contracted at 200, and then Ramen Jr., I think he was at 
215 a week before the fight and asked for it to be at 205 and said he could make it. And I, I believe that's when they turned it down. So there, there was some concern on Jake Paul, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure he was like, uh oh, you know, because I don't, I don't care. You can look at Robin's fight and laugh and say he got knocked out. This is an actual, like, trained boxer. You know, can, can, I, can I cut you off there? Yeah, go ahead. And, and Danny, because I, I want to make sure that the information is accurate, because I could have sworn what it was, was that they, Rockman had a certain time frame in order to uh, settle the last negotiations. It was either 200 or 205. He put out there 215, but he was supposed to have until midnight in order to be able to make his decision. But he was in the negotiations. And so... And he was supposed to have until midnight, but then around eight o'clock, they called everything off saying that, you know, no, we, you, you know, 215 is too much where he was still supposed to have time and like another four hours to be able to, you know, meet the deadline. But I couldn't remember if it was, it was 200 or if it was 205. And I know Rockman said 215 just to try to negotiate. Yeah, what I recall was uh, Paul had actually agreed to 205, and when he tried to get up to 215 because his body just wasn't dropping any more weight at that time, I think that's when when Paul was like, oh, no, nah, not 215, you know? Right, but the, the deadline was supposed to be midnight, but they called everything off at 8 o'clock. Rockman was saying that what he was doing was he was just negotiating. He was just trying to see if he can go ahead and get them to give him a couple more pounds, but if they wasn't, then he was gonna go down to 205. He just was waiting, you know, doing negotiations. Yeah, but it, it was initially contracted at 200 and they moved it to 205. And I guess it, it comes down to this. Jake Paul just wanted Rob to, to, he wanted his safety precautions to assure that Robin wasn't strong enough to hurt him. Because anything, anything over that weight, Robin was probably gonna knock him out. And I know his team probably feared that. And, and, and this would be the, on top of that being the first boxer that Rom, that uh, Jake Paul had, actual boxer that Jake Paul has faced. So I do think that Jake Paul did send some concern and he bowed out of this fight. That's what I believe happened. I don't, I don't think it was anything that Robin, really, you know, purposely did. I think that it, it was all on, the weight was the catch and Robin couldn't make the weight and Jake Paul was not going to, Put, he wasn't going to put himself in harm's way because he, he he just wasn't. That's just why, why I think. The only thing I'll add is that, man, I'm not going to lie. He at, at this point, you know, with the fight being canceled and and with, you know, them not agreeing to 215, he could have kept that way in to be like, I don't know what that I don't know what that does. It doesn't really do anything for me when the fight was already canceled. I mean, the only thing that it may do something for is maybe the idea of them, you know, actually doing it again a few months from now, but I don't know what the act of doing that does at this point when the, the deed had already been done. Yeah, I think on Rockman's behalf, what he was doing is he was trying to prove to them that when he was in negotiations on that particular day that he all always had intentions of making 205. It wasn't the fact that he was trying to get out of it. He is saying that Paul was just trying to use a way out. So once he ended up negotiating, negotiating and saying 215 in negotiations, that that was an easy way for them 
to go ahead and find an out. It's kind of like a relationship. You know what I'm saying? Like if you want out of a relationship, somebody can do something very small. He'd be like, oh, I can't take it anymore. That's it. You know what I'm saying? And that's what Paul and, you know, and his crew did when it came to that um, situation. So he was just trying to prove like, no, nah, man, I always was, they had the intent to come to 205. You know what I mean? And he was saying that he would have made 205 had he not stopped training because of the fact that they called the fight off. Then the other thing too was that he said that all he heard was on like Twitter or whatever it is that he heard the fight was canceled. Nobody ever like came to him. So he wanted to make sure that he went through, you know, on his end as far as what he was supposed to be doing, because then if he didn't, you know, attempt to continue to make weight, then they can use that against him later on. But um, the only thing that I'll give Paul credit for is if he was actually going to take this fight, then I would have to commend him because man, I tell you, like anytime that, regardless of what level, anytime I've been around a professional, they show you why they're professional. You know what I'm saying? Like you play basketball, right? And you just around somebody who barely can score in the league. But you get them out there around some regular, you know, Joe Smoes. Like they look like Jordan. You know what I'm saying? You mess around and try to, you know, play flag football with an NFL player who like was the 53rd man. Like you can't get that flag off that dude. Or if you try to, you're not going to be able to tackle him. You're not going to be able to touch him. So for him and, and, and boxers, I remember I worked at Powerhouse Gym and it was this guy. He had fought Dwight Muhammad Kawi, but he didn't have the best record. But I remember we had this bag inside there. And before I knew that he fought Dwight Muhammad Kawi, he was just throwing his jab. I'm like, dang, like, woo. You know what I'm saying? It's just seeing a professional athlete and actually trying to perform against a professional athlete. If he was going to do that, then I would have to give him you know, the highest amount of kudos possible because that's a daunting task. With a professional boxer, the difference of what you would notice is how poised they are. Like a lot of times, like guys that do like some stuff to try to get in and do something while they just stay poised, putting that jab on you, doing something that um, like be being very accurate in certain spots and precision punches, you know what I mean? And things like that. So if he was able to, you know, take on that task, I would have gave him, like I said, the highest amount you know, um, of kudos. But unfortunately, the fight didn't take place. And uh, we'll see where both guys go from here. The second to last topic that we want to address is Manny Pacquiao. His son, you know, he, he lost this past weekend to a fighter and his uh, fighter was in his professional debut. You guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, actually, I don't have sweet thoughts on that. I mean, fair play to him. He want to continue his career. He can. He's he's always going to be held to a, a particular type of scrutiny, you know, because of who his father is. But if he wants to continue his career, he can. I mean, if he want to be successful, he can. I mean, plenty of boxers lost a pro debut, but he has to decide how good he's going to be. You know, Manny Pacquiao Sr. can't decide that for him. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is I don't think that like he has the pressure of having that name, you know, being the son of who he's a son of, but, you know, we were talking before we started recording about Robesi Ramirez, you know, who is now in the running for, you know, fighting at the world level, possibly fighting for a belt after his story, amateur career, he lost his pro debut and, you know, 10 fights later, he's in that position. And so, 
you know, I, I don't have much on it, but I'll just say that, you know, if Boston is something he wants to continue to do, he definitely is going to have the resources to bounce back, you know, and it could just be, you know, a, a small, a small blip on the radar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, everybody's not money, man. You know what I'm saying? You know, he, look at his father. His father was getting whooped on a little bit early in his career, you know, before he caught, you know, his stride. You know, you think about all-time greats like Bernard Hopkins. He lost his first fight, and you see what he did in his career. You know, Sora Romasai lost his first two fights. So, you know, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and, you know, it's just, you know, it's a small, you know, blimp, you know what I mean, in a row. So, shout out to him for even getting in there. But it wasn't his – He's this wasn't his debut. He lost to a guy who was in his debut. So, you know, a little bit more challenging, but, you know, if he really wants it, then, you know, dust yourself off and get back on the horse, you know? Now, the last topic that we have is an all-time great. You know, speaking of that, you got uh, Nonito Donaire. He's talking about not retiring, you know, after his last loss, you know, the Monster New Way. What he's talking about now is that he wants to move down to 115 and collect the belt. You know, what do you think about Nonito, Nonito Donaire's decision not to retire and actually drop down and wait to collect another title. Uh, I don't know, but I think that's a one of the better decisions that he would make, given that he could actually make one fifteen because this is a weight he hasn't made in a long time. Um, but then again, I had those same questions when he went down to one eighteen, and he he pretty much surprised me there. So it's it's obvious he he shouldn't be competing against guys like Anuwe right now. But I do think he has an active size advantage overall. Just looking at the size advantage they had over Nui, he has an even bigger size advantage over um, guys like Gonzalez and Estrada. The only thing that concerns me is that those guys are even faster, and that's what's going to probably work against Nonito Donaire's favor. You know, the only thing Donaire got, got going for him is that he can he, he'll always be that guy that can hit those shots in the middle of the fire, but it's like to do that, you got to keep being in the middle of that fire. So it's some things about it that's concerning, but it wouldn't hurt to, to try out a fight or two at 115 to see how it goes before you start going after the big boys. Yeah. I mean, if this is what he wants to do, far be it for me to write him off because every time he's been written off in the past, he's came back and has done something amazing. And so, you know, I, I think that he does still have something left in the tank. He just ran up against a monster. But, you know, given the names that he, he mentioned, if he can still be the same Donaire at 115 that he was at 118 like a year ago, I think he can win a championship in that, in that division. You know, like Chocolatito's a dog and Yoka's the dog, but those are very good fights. And so if somebody wants to write him off, they can. It just won't be me. Yeah. I mean, typically – to me, as a rule of thumb, I don't like when guys, as they get older, to drop down and wait because then you have to worry about, you know, draining yourself. You older, you fighting against these quicker, you know, guys, and they can just rat a tat tat you. You slower, you know. He always gonna have that pop in his punch, but I just think he's done enough. I don't, I don't know what that that would do for him. You know what I mean? Uh, if it's just about paydays and things like that, if you just want to add some more to his bank account, then so be it. But I just don't know what it'll do. Cause I think those other guys are going to be tied up. Now, if he's just going after, you know, Ioka, 
and then he'll call it a day. But I just don't think that that would be enough for him. I think that he'll be trying to seek out other opportunities. And, and for sure, for sure, um, Mr. Donair, stay away from Bam. Now. You know, <laughs> I knew you was going to say that, too. I was waiting on Bam. Yeah, I was waiting on Bam. <laughs> stay away from Bam. You know, that, you don't want them problems. Not at 39, 40 years of age. So, you know, shout out to him, man. He's had an illustrious career. You know, Bill, you always mentioned the Darchinian fight, you know, when he stepped on the scene. And, you know, he's, he's always, you know, with the exception of the Waters fight, you know, he's always showed up. I mean, he, he showed up in that fight. Just Waters uh, was a little bit too much on that day. But, you know, what I mean, what can you say when you got an all-time great like that who's defied the eyes so much? So, I don't know. You know what I mean? I just, for me personally, I, just, I would like to see him walk off into the sunset. But, you know, it's his life. It's his career. So, wh whatever duration he go, you know, he has my full support. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, fellas, you know, you got anything else you, you, you want to say before we wrap things up? Um, nothing crazy. I just want to put people on notice, you know, with we talked about that Teofimo fight coming up next week. Look out for those prospects on that, on those undercars, man. We got Xander Zayas, who we've talked about um, before. He's going to be fighting. And then you have Duke Reagan, who was, uh, had a very good amateur career and was on that 2020 Olympic team and just turned pro this year, I believe. Or maybe, maybe it was last year, but he just turned pro. So um, he, he's fighting. Troy Isley, who we've talked about before, is fighting. He was also an Olympian. He's had a few fights under his belt on under top rank. He had about four or five fights, I believe. So look out for those guys. But that's all I got. Bill, you tapped out? Yeah, cool, cool. Nothing, nothing for me. All right, bet, man. Only thing I'm going to say is, man, shout out to the good people of Colombia, especially the ones in Medellin or Medellin, as they say, you know, they really, you know, looked out and supported everything that, that we were doing while we were out there and just being so helpful, so friendly, so lovely, you know, shout out to Community 13, you know, they, they do a wonderful job. If you're ever out there in Columbia, if you're in Medellin, go ahead and support um, that area. What it was with, with, with them is that in 1990, 91, Medellin was definitely one of the murder capitals of the world where you had like 6,000 plus murders just within one year. That was the Pablo Escobar era. And so now what they've done in some of those communities is that if you go there, they've just put on performances, they put on shows, they want you to see how talented they are. They want you to have a good time. They want you to see how friendly the people are, how much pride they have in their country. And that's something that, you know, here that we can consider as well in some of our impoverished areas, as opposed to it being like drug, you know, just run with drugs and, and, and crime and riddled with crime, we should start seeking to do those type of things, showing showcasing the talent because they are. What I would say about the people of Medellin is they are some of the most talented, good-spirited people. And a specific shout out to Christian. Christian made sure that we were, you know, in good hands. We you know when we were at our place that we were staying, you know, good people like Yoli. Yoli is just a young girl who is uh She's just, just a good spirit, you know what I mean? And, and just there's countless others, man, but I just want to shout them out because they just overly extended their arms, their welcoming arms to us. And I just want to say thank you for that. On that note, man, um, we'll go ahead and close the show out. Hopefully you enjoyed it and we'll catch you next week. Peace. Peace. Peace.